is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell, and every episode I interview a celebrity about what they would choose to eat for their last meal. Then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program... Brooke. You are Top Chef. Top Chef season 14 winner Brooke Williamson, who won the well-respected reality cooking competition last month. I am not a big TV person. I only watch a few shows religiously, but Top Chef is at the top of my list. I count down the days when a new season is starting. So this was exciting for me. And so I hope it's exciting for you guys as well. Later in the episode, we will explore the history of the donut. And this brings me so much glee. I chat with a few of the world's finest donut experts, three Seattle cops. As a kid, I grew up, I loved donuts, and so it just continued on into my police career. 20 years of policing, I find myself always enjoying a nice donut. Top Chef winner Brooke Williamson and her husband own a handful of restaurants in Los Angeles. Playa Provisions, The Triple, De Kiko Kiko, and Hudson House. There's something about Top Chef to me. It's the only food show that I really like to watch. It just seems like it's not so catty and it's actually about the cooking instead of, you know, all these crazy games and stuff. Is that why it's something that you actually really wanted to win? What does this kind of mean in the food world on the chef side to win the honor of Top Chef? Yeah, I think it's probably the most respected food show um, on television, you know, kind of the original competition show. And it's really not about the drama. Um, Of course, there becomes drama because we're a bunch of chefs and we're hot-headed and and really passionate and driven to to all attain the same goal. Um, But it's really about the food, and I think they've done a really incredible job of showcasing that. And I think because of that, they are able to get some really great talent and really well-respected chefs. What were you eating when you weren't on camera? Because all the food looks so amazing, but you're not eating that for your meals. No, I mean, we're cooking for ourselves most of the time. And the last thing we really feel like doing after a really long day of shooting is, is cooking. So I ordered like a case of cup of noodles. There was a lot of like rice and like store-bought kimchi and cup of noodles. That was kind of my life. Now, if you haven't seen Top Chef, let me tell you about how the show works. Each episode presents the chefs with a couple of cooking challenges. So for example, they'll have to create a seven course meal featuring radishes, or they have to come up with a vegetarian version of a classic American comfort dish. And they always have a very limited time to create a meal that's worthy to serve to the hosts, Chef Tom Colicchio and Padma Lakshmi, and often some very famous chef judges. When you get these challenges, how often are you just making a dish up out of your head? And how often is it a dish that you've made before? I mean, for me, it's pretty much always a dish out of my head. I never kind of default to a go-to dish. I don't really have a go-to dish that I that I have in my head always. Um, and oftentimes for these challenges, it's a very specific challenge. Um, so I, I'm kind of always thinking of something new. And a lot of that is just having a... Uh, a library of of ingredients and knowing, you know, knowing how to cook in the first place. So long before I started this podcast, I did a story for the radio where I went around Seattle and I interviewed a bunch of chefs about what their last meal would be, which I guess is kind of the precursor to this. Uh, Side note, I accidentally deleted all of those interviews by pushing the wrong button on my recorder and the story never played. What? Yeah. Is that true? Yes, it's true. And there's nothing that will make a journalist's body hurt more than that happening. It's awful. And I 
didn't have the heart to get back in touch with all 10 or however many people oh, I interviewed. No. And so I just dropped it. So every episode of this podcast is me redeeming myself. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing that I learned by asking chefs their last meal is these are people who have been exposed to some of the fanciest ingredients, the most expensive ingredients, uh, because they have them at their fingertips in the restaurants they work at. So, you know, they've often traveled around the world and they've eaten caviar and foie gras and all these fancy things. But I found that every single one of them chose a comfort food, usually something that they're parent made. So Brooke being a chef, I was curious to see what she said. And for Brooke's last meal, she delves into the category of things made from dough. A plain, really beautiful buttery croissant, a bowl of ramen, uh, a plate full of donuts, and God, there's there's so much. Most of it is Asian, except for like the buttery pastries. And the donuts. Let's yeah. talk about donuts because that is a fun topic. So to you, what is your what is your ideal plate of donuts? What's going to be on that plate? Um, so if I don't have like the option of like really beautiful specialty donuts, um, I will always go for a plain glazed donut. Um, a raised glazed donut is kind of my go-to. Um, but there is a donut place in LA called Sidecar that has some really incredible donuts. And my go-to for that place, um, there are three go-tos that I have to sort of mimic the glazed donut would be their butter and sea salt. Um, and it has like a butter glaze and, um, like Malden salt on top. It's just so yummy. Um, they also do a huckleberry donut, which is actually a cake donut, which is not generally my go-to, but it's so good. And it has whole huckleberries in it and huckleberry glaze. And then um, they also do an egg-filled donut. It's like a raised donut, and it looks like a jelly donut from the outside, um, but it has like a soft-boiled egg and um, serrano ham and pesto inside. That is such a good idea. Why don't more it's people so do savory donuts? I know, right? There's, it's just, it's, it totally works. And what is it about donuts for you? Is that something nostalgic? Um, no, I mean, I didn't eat a ton of donuts as a kid. I, I grew up in a really healthy household. Um, maybe that's part of it. Um, but I don't know. There's something about like simple, really well done dough that is craveable to me. Can you eat one donut and be satisfied? I mean, probably not. I probably would eat don't. I would probably continue to eat until I felt sick. But that's generally <laughs> why I only buy one donut. <laughs> yeah, you got to leave the facility, drive far away, and then eat it so you yeah, can't go back. Exactly. Exactly. And what do you like to drink with your donuts? Hmm, that's a good one. Well, it depends. Like, if I were to be able to get any beverage with my donut that I could possibly get, I'd probably get like an almond or coconut milk matcha latte. Um, I do love a good espresso, though. And um, I feel like bourbon pretty much goes with anything. Bourbon and donuts. So do you think of donuts as just a breakfast food or is this, you know, with the bourbon, is this nighttime donut action? Oh, I mean, like we have donuts on our dessert menu at Playa Provisions. We have donuts on our brunch menu. Like I would eat a donut at any time of day. What kind of donuts do you guys do? We change them up daily or like every other day. We have a different donut. When I hear donuts, the first person I think of is Homer Simpson. Mmm, donut. But, shockingly, Homer Simpson was not available to be interviewed for this podcast. So I had to move on to my second thought. The second thing I think of when I think of donuts is cops. When we come back, I sit down with a few of Seattle's finest to talk about and devour donuts. 
proving once and for all that the cop donut stereotype is alive, well, and true. Watch the donut, not the hole. Oh, cops and donuts. It's a tale as old as time. In 1996, the New York Times said, quote, no profession is as closely identified with food as police work is with donuts. And comedian Jim Gaffigan once told this joke. The police, they love donuts, right? Hey, cop, why don't you get a donut? Cops love donuts. Which is an interesting stereotype, because you know who else loves donuts? Absolutely everyone. <laughs> Of course cops love donuts, because they know the difference between right and wrong. <laughs> and not liking donuts is wrong. So I picked up the phone, I dialed seven numbers, and I called the Seattle Police Department. My hope was that they would send a few officers over to the radio station to talk about where this whole cop donut thing came from. But as I dialed those seven numbers, I became slightly terrified that not only would they be offended by my request and turn down my request, but they might arrest me on the spot. Through, through the phone. I don't know, man. Technology these days. You could arrest someone through the phone, I bet. But lucky for us, it turns out that cops really, really do like donuts. And they're not ashamed to say so. Seattle Police Department spokesman Sean Whitcomb was like, how many officers do you need? We all love donuts. It's going to be hard to whittle this down. But we were able to whittle down to three cops. We had Officer Whitcomb and... Beth Waring, Bias Crimes Coordinator. What does that mean? I investigate... All the hate crimes in the city. Adrian Diaz, community outreach. Where did the whole cops and donuts thing come from in the first place? You know, police officers are shift workers, which means we work around the clock, 365 days a year. And we also work out in the field. And a lot of places closed at night. And so if you're, you're working the night shift and you're hungry, I mean, options are limited. And a donut shop is a bakery, which means everything is baked fresh daily or in this case, I suppose, fried. The donuts are prepared in the early morning hours. Yeah, I spent five years working nights, and three of those years were on a bike, you know, working the Ave on a bike at night in, you know, Seattle winter times sometimes can be unpleasant. So it was nice around, you know, three in the morning to pop into a donut shop and have a, a hot donut, you know, filled with gooey raspberry jelly. It was delicious. Also at the time, a lot of officers were doing their reports in the field. People didn't just go to the precinct to write a report. So you actually stayed in your beat. So hot donuts, writing your reports in the field, it's a good recipe. The one that I have probably the most fond memories of is a place called Super Donut. And they're these very special, old-fashioned. They were like uh, rectangular bars, a little smaller than like a maple bar. And they were super good. And they were like literally making them by the time we were walking in. And furthermore, they were just really excited to have us in the store. You know, for them as an added sense of security. From what I've read, cops started hanging out in donut shops around the 1950s, which coincides pretty nicely with the birth of the country's three biggest donut shops. Krispy Kreme opened its first shop in 1937, Winchell's in 1948, and Dunkin' Donuts in 1950. Did you ever have any feelings about not wanting to be seen in a donut shop as a cop because of the stereotype? Yeah, when I first got hired, yeah, I remember an academy instructor telling us, hey, one thing about being a cop is you can't go around eating donuts, you know. Don't perpetuate the stereotype. But, you know, when you're working nights, that wears off really quickly. I mean, I would, I'd go to Starbucks, but at the time that I was working in patrol, my police career actually predates the proliferation of that awesome coffee company. Tell us another story, Grandpa. 
<laughs> the olden days before Starbucks. And I also had to walk to work uphill both ways. It was five miles in the snow. With donuts for shoes. Three feet deep. Mm-hmm. But Officer Diaz has no problem perpetuating the donut stereotype. Actually, as a kid, I grew up, I loved donuts, and so it just continued on into my police career. 20 years of, of policing, I find myself always enjoying a nice donut. He says he does a lot of outreach work with kids. They even have an event called Donuts and Dialogue. While it might be a stereotype in there, I own that stereotype. I make it a part of like bringing donuts to, to various different events, and uh, so uh, for me, I actually enjoy that stereotype because it allows me to continue to eat donuts every day when I can. So I started out when I when I got this job about 50 pounds lighter. And I think, you know, it's filled up the belly nicely with a variety of different donuts. So if we were to cut you open right now, you think donuts I would think just that's spill all out? Would come out. <laughs> Cream filling, jelly donut filling, Pretty sprinkles. Much. <laughs> Pretty much. How, so how often do you eat donuts? I would probably say at least twice a week on a good week a little bit more than that since these cops are obviously donut experts i arranged a little taste test for us donuts have gotten pretty fancy in seattle of course you can go to one of the big chains you can go to a little mom and pop shop in a strip mall but i selfishly went the fancy route partly because i had not tried any of these donuts and partly because officer sean whitcomb practically begged for me to go get them so i first picked up the cops' favorite donuts, which are from General Porpoise, a donut shop in Seattle owned by James Beard Award-winning chef Renee Erickson. And these fancy donuts come with a fancy price. These were about $4.50 each, which is why I was cutting them in half. These donuts were on my dime. I also got a couple donuts from Mighty O Donuts, which is a favorite in the city, and one from Rodeo Donuts, which is inside Cupcake Royale. Okay, so we're going to try first the General Porpoise Vanilla Cream-Filled Yeast Donut. Sounds of chewing. <laughs> what everyone likes to hear in their headphones. <laughs> oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that, that's really good. I love the cream. It's just nice and fluffy. One of my favorite things about these donuts is the sanding sugar all the way around the donut. Mm -hmm. They're so soft and so fluffy, and the filling is so light. It's like it could float in the air. Yeah, the donut is, is really light. The uh, custard, and you can see the vanilla bean in it really has a nice aftertaste. It's kind of melts in your mouth. And for me, I'm reminded of my childhood. My grandmother used to make uh, cream puffs and it's slightly different, but the filling is very reminiscent. It kind of evokes those childhood memories. If I'm going to go have donuts, I would seek this out because it's so darn good. You seem like a different person after you ate it. You look like you went somewhere else. Like you have a dreamy, <laughs> far off look in your eye and you look more relaxed in your chair and you have this like transcendent kind of pleasure on your face. It's the sugar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you went to this whole new world and I was just thinking like, would it be bad if I started licking the napkin for the sugar? <laughs> get one that was a little more classic. So this is a cinnamon sugar cake donut from Mighty O. All their donuts are vegan and organic. And I don't think that you can tell. I think it tastes just like a really good donut. A good texture on it. I wouldn't have not known if it was vegan. I think it tastes pretty good. You know, it's super clean. Yeah. You know how sometimes you get sort of that fried donut aftertaste? Mm -hmm. This has none of that. It's definitely more sort of like a cake texture. Yeah. And again, it has the awesome sanding sugar crunch to it. 
Yeah, it's not greasy at all. No, it's wonderful. We also tasted a chocolate cake donut from Idea with raspberry frosting, which was, in my opinion, the perfect donut. We all loved it. All right, last donut. I bought this one because it looked so perfect that it looked fake, like something that Homer Simpson would eat because it has this perfect pink frosting and the white cake. And this is from Rodeo Donut. And this one is honey blood orange. Well, it's very soft. Yeah, this one is a, a yeasted donut. I actually like the actual donut donut piece. I think it's a topping mm-hmm. that has a little bit of, it, I don't know, I would say a tart you know, type of taste to it. It just. See, I wanted more of the tartness of the topping. And I kind of, I felt like it's a little drier. I don't think the flavors match as well. I think the uh, the donut and the, the glaze, they might be uh, wonderful, separate, but together it's, just leaves me wanting something a little different. The cops have spoken. If you ever find yourself in Seattle, or if you live here already, you now know where the fancy cop-approved donuts are at. I'm just glad that cops don't have a stereotype for eating vegetables, because that would be terrible. <laughs> so it hasn't gone cops and kale. No, or cops and carrots. I, I think this is pretty much cops and donuts, and that works. Forever and ever. Okay, grab a donut because it's time to take a teensy little break. And when your last meal continues, what is the proper way to spell donut? We'll crack open the Merriam-Webster so you don't have to because I don't want you to get a paper cut. back to Top Chef winner Brooke Williamson's last meal. But before we get into the history of donuts, I thought we should talk about the spelling. I got a tweet from a listener asking me which spelling is correct. Donut as in D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T or D-O-N-U-T. And this is something I'd wondered myself. Uh, According to the dictionary, both in the book and online, both are correct. Uh, D-O-U-G-H is the original spelling, uh, but the shorter D-O-N-U-T version got popular because of Dunkin' Donuts. As for the history of the donut, I get a little help from Paul Mullins, professor of anthropology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and author of the book Glazed America, The History of the Donut. So let's delve into the history of the donut. Um, I know each culture has one. So where do you even start when you're talking about the history of the donut? Basically, every culture sort of has fried pastry, if you will. You know, sometimes it's a savory, sometimes it's sweet. You know, there's a a good argument to be made that the model for the 19th century American donut really is invested in Dutch cuisine. We uh, spin it in kind of distinctive ways in the 19th century, especially in America. The donut, as you and I consume donuts in the early 21st century, is a very much a quintessential American food in the sense that, you know, in the first half of the 19th century, when American cookbooks emerge really for the first time, they all have a donut recipe. The very earliest American cookbooks always had donut recipes. Um, And, you know, they very quickly become a sweet food. Um, So they become a sort of dessert food very, very rapidly. And, you know, that fundamental identity has kind of always stayed the same. We may eat donuts sometimes after church on Sunday, or we may eat them sometimes in the evening on the drive back home, as opposed to simply being an utterly breakfast food. But they're very much quintessentially American. Um, however, you know, that Americanist, you know, overseas, there's very kind of conflicting attitudes toward donuts. 
you know, they're often looked at as truly American foods in both good and bad ways. You know, people love donuts overseas. However, they also look at them as the kind of the worst face of American food ways. It's a food of desire that's not healthy. It has no redeeming qualities whatsoever, except for taste. Ah, poor donuts. No redeeming qualities. Donuts were even picked on in Wikipedia. The second paragraph of the donut page on Wikipedia starts with this sentence, quote, Donuts are unhealthy, some less so than others. But one might argue that donuts with holes in the middle are actually healthier for us because that is just one less bite of fried dough. Did donuts always have a hole? Was that, was that the original donut? No, donuts didn't always have a hole. That's, um, that's probably a 19th century um, creation, and we have no satisfying answer to where that hole came from either. And we also don't completely understand why they're called doughnuts. I'm so curious about the behind the scenes. I once interviewed someone who had been on one of those cupcake shows on the Food Network, and she said that they purposely kept them up for a lot of hours so that they would get emotional. And that's why you see people crying over frosting that they normally wouldn't cry about. Uh, is there anything like that that they do on this show to kind of I mean, trigger emotion? There's definitely an aspect of exhaustion. Um, there's also a, an aspect of, you know, you're completely immersed in this world. Um, you know, you don't have cell phones, you don't have computers, you don't have your family, you don't have your friends, you don't have books or music or anything to distract your brain from the goal at hand. You know, it's it's really the most important thing in your entire life at that moment. And I think that because you don't have any of those out, outside distractions, it really does become that way. Me leaving my restaurants and my husband and my nine-year-old son at home, it, it, you know, you get eliminated. You don't, you don't get to go home. So there's really nothing more important than staying in the competition and making it all worth it. So what do you do when you're not filming? What do you do with the rest of your time if you don't do any of those things? I, I mean, there's very little time when you're not filming. Um, the, the only job for those, say, approximate seven weeks is to make a show. So there's very little downtime. There's maybe one day a week where you're not competing. And during that day, you're generally in interviews for at least half the day um, because we as the chefs are the only people that are narrating what's going on. Um, so we do spend a lot of time in interview and and even more time as as people are eliminated because there are fewer people to narrate the episode. So, um, you know, there are a few hours a week where, you know, we're maybe rent, they rent movies for us or we make dinner um, or we nap or we do our laundry. I use that time to, like, wash my hair and blow dry it. <laughs> <laughs> I read that you guys all watch The Notebook together. We did. We had one, like, long movie day where um, it, they had given the entire crew the day off, so they rented, like, eight movies for us and we just had a movie marathon and we because we were in Charleston we were like let's rent the notebook and I think one person had been eliminated so there were 15 of us and um, we literally were all sitting on the couches like watching a movie crying hysterically I think we went through <laughs> like seven rolls of toilet paper that day and that was Brooke Williamson's last meal Brooke Williamson is the winner of Top Chef Season 14 and co-owner of several fine restaurants in the Los Angeles area, including Playa Provisions and De Kiko Kiko, which is very fun to say. Thank you so much to our Seattle police officers for eating donuts. I know it was hard, but you did it. Sean Whitcomb, Beth Waring, and Adrian Diaz, this one goes out to you. 
Thanks to Paul Mullins, author of Glazed America, The History of the Donuts. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, music by Prom Queen. And hey, if you like the podcast, maybe give us a little rating on iTunes or whatever it's called wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps to get the podcast into the ears of people across America and the world, and that helps everybody. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. Thank you.